Welcome to the uh, COVID-19 and Hematologic Malignancies Expert Insight webcast. Uh, we are now part of this uh, six-week series. We're now in part four, uh, as I trust you've been following every part of our series, uh, where we've been thinking together a little bit about what this unfortunate COVID crisis has meant for us as hematologists and oncologists taking care of patients who have hematologic malignancies and finding ways to best treat our patients so that they can uh, both overcome their hematologic malignancy and also appropriately deal with this crisis that we're all facing uh, on a daily basis. My name is Dr. Joseph McHale. I'm a hematologist and a professor at the Translational Genomics Research Institute, which is an affiliate of City of Hope. And I'm also the chief medical officer of the International Myeloma Foundation. Uh, we're very happy to bring this program to you and to let you know that it is CME accredited. Uh, at the end of the program, you'll be able to uh, provide us some feedback and obtain CME credit uh, if you wish to do so. And we trust uh, that you'll be able to also send us questions uh, so that we can answer them back to you electronically, uh, not only about the program itself, but of course, uh, the very content that we're bringing forward that is rapidly evolving, as we all know, uh, as this content is changing literally on a daily basis. I'm joined today by really a tremendous group of individuals, many of them I know personally and know well, and some I've just come to know recently. Uh, as we think today in this particular roundtable, you may recall our first week, uh, we had a roundtable of expert physicians and infectious diseases specialists um, that were primarily from the New York and the San Francisco region. Today, our focus is going to be a little bit more uh, uh, in Chicago and Seattle, uh, but we're also providing, I think, a very important dimension today to look at the patient's perspective and patient advocate perspective uh, of patients with hematological malignancy as we go through this series. In a few moments, each of our presenters will be able to share uh, more detail, but let me quickly introduce you to them. We have Dr. Jessica Altman, who's the Director of the Acute Leukemia Program at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois, and it's great to have you with us, Jessica. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Mary Beth Percival, uh, she's also an expert in myeloid diseases, uh, and she specializes in acute leukemia, and she's at the University of Washington, and Fred Hutchison Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington. So great to have you with us, Mary Beth. We have Dr. Uh, Michael Agnaroni, uh, who's an infectious disease specialist, also from Northwestern in Chicago, uh, who is going to be able to provide some very unique uh, perspective to us. Most of us in the hematology and oncology world uh, have some interaction with ID specialists, perhaps never more than the last few months. So we're really uh, appreciative of him being with us today to share with us his perspective. We also have Dr. Matt Levine, who is an associate professor in emergency medicine at Northwestern um, uh, University at the, at the Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Uh, and Matt is really uh, playing double duty for us today. Uh, he himself is, uh, has been a patient with a hematological disease that I'll allow him to explain later, but he's also an emergency room physician. So he's really on the front line here. And it'll be very interesting to have his perspective. And lastly, a very dear friend, don't hold it against him that he's a dear friend of mine, but a very dear friend of mine, Yelak Biru, who is both a myeloma patient and a tremendous myeloma uh, patient advocate. 
Uh, in fact, he's advocated for patients with multiple diseases, uh, and he has a, a wonderful presence uh, and has uh, really uh, been a blessing to me and to so many uh, in the myeloma community, and we're very thankful to have him here with us as well. So thanks, Elak, for joining us. Well, let's dive right in, and let's start uh, with uh, Michael uh, from an ID uh, perspective. In our, in our first uh, series together in our first roundtable, we talked quite a bit uh, with an ID specialist in New York uh, about the diagnosis and some of the unique features of this um, uh, unfortunate virus, including that uh, it could be contracted even when patients are asymptomatic or transmitted when patients were asymptomatic. That was quite different than what we'd experienced from the SARS perspective in the past uh, when that came to Toronto and other places uh, uh, over 15 years ago. Uh, but we didn't get a lot of time to talk and dive in a little bit deeper as to our treatment strategy and, and, and some of the testing elements that are so important with this condition. So, uh, Michael, I'll, I'll turn to you and, and get you to share with us some of your perspective as to uh, how you've been involved in, in patients with COVID-19 and how uh, things are evolving so rapidly in the way we think about this illness and how we treat it. So, so let me turn it to you. Well, thank you, Joseph, for uh, allowing me to be on this panel. Um, and I think it's great to have such a diverse panel uh, to talk about the different experiences we all had with COVID. Um, so, you know, just looking at some of the things that have changed, uh, even in the past few weeks uh, with COVID, probably since many of your viewers probably looked at the last uh, or watched the last roundtable, are a lot of the changes, one, with diagnostics. So that was the big kind of hot button. When are we going to get diagnostics? We need more diagnostics. We've actually seen an expansion in those. Um, and I think most notably, a lot more of the rapid diagnostics. So these diagnostic tests where we can get results uh, within a few hours instead of having to wait half a day or longer for results. And so I think that's really impacting how we can start testing every patient that's being admitted to the hospital or that we're seeing in clinic, whether they're asymptomatic or not. So as you brought up, Joseph, you know, patients who are asymptomatic may be spreading this before they get symptoms. And so that's a way for us to identify those. And I think that's one of the biggest changes that's occurred um, kind of on the clinical front with identifying people with this infection. The next wave is probably going to be... Can I ask just about that real quickly? Yeah. So is that what you're doing in Chicago now? So are you... As, as a hospital and as a network there, because I know you obviously have a lot of patients, are you now testing everyone that comes in through the emergency room or for admission? Or I suspect you're still not doing as many elective procedures, although I understand those are starting to come back. Just help us understand a little bit more what that looks like for testing. And are you able to get that result so quickly that it might even influence where you triage patients? Yeah, so we're doing anyone who's being admitted to the hospital through the emergency room, uh, through elective surgery, so the few that we're doing, uh, even admissions from clinic, we're uh, testing those individuals as they get admitted. Um, we're using more of the rapid platforms uh, for those. If they're going through the ER or there's a higher suspicion, uh, we're using uh, the platforms where the results come back within about six hours or so. And that's really changed, I think, how we triage those patients. So, you know, someone who we weren't expecting and they end up being positive, they're going to go to one of our COVID units instead of going for uh, your viewers, instead of going to the hematology oncology unit or the stem cell unit. 
Uh, and this way we can really direct them to somewhere where they can be monitored, but also they're in an area where they are under the same uh, PPE precautions that uh, every other patient on that floor is under. And we're really then protecting the other individuals or the other patients on the units. And That's we're doing really, that. really helpful. That, thank you. Yeah. Are you using different types of testing then? So we do. We have uh, the rapid test. Uh, so the um, uh, Abbott Allier ID Now test, um, that is the test where you get the results within a few hours. And, and Matt could probably comment on that one. Um, we also do the uh, platform that's uh, through the Gene Expert platform. Uh, that result comes back after about six hours or so is about our average. Um, and we do have another testing platform that we're really using that more for the outpatient setting uh, for uh, patients that are getting screened before an elective surgery. Um, so they may get tested or for the, our obstetric patients they may get tested 24, 48 hours before. And that's a, a little bit different platform that we use. So we do have a couple of platforms that we're using. And that's, I think, been the benefit of what's changed over uh, just the past probably two, three weeks and how um, we're all getting more familiar with using these tests and how we can put those into place in situations that are different than they were back in early March or mid-March, uh, where now we can focus on uh, what groups we can test, but then also testing everyone who's coming into the healthcare setting uh, to target those individuals. The next phase is going to be the antibody tests. I think that's going to be the next big wave is how are we going to implement those. We're just starting with that. We're very early with the antibody testing. Um, and so I think that's important uh, kind of change number one is just the testing. I think important change number two that's gone on since um, uh, everyone has viewed probably the first round table is the treatment. Um, early on, it was kind of the wild west, so to speak. So any little thing that was looked at that might have antiviral, anti-inflammatory, anti-whatever activity was being looked at. We've now started to whittle that list down. So we know that the uh, anti-HIV therapy, the uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, probably doesn't have that much uh, activity or is not that beneficial for this uh, viral infection. Uh, what's really come to the forefront is the antiviral remdesivir. Uh, so we have uh, the prelim data that the company released from the early patients that were randomized to placebo. Um, and that showed benefit in uh, improvement in disease status and getting individuals uh, discharged from the hospital. And that was significantly uh, uh, um, uh, different between the placebo group and the remdesivir group. Numerically, there was a difference in mortality. So there was an 8% mortality versus 11% mortality in the placebo. We've also had some published data on uh, the compassionate use and those that are more critically ill. Uh, and some company released data that may be shorter treatment regimens, five days versus 10 days may be equivalent. Um, which I think is really good. So we're starting to see the science at work with our treatments with remdesivir um, uh, as an antiviral. I think the next phase is going to be these anti-inflammatories like the IL-6 inhibitors, cerulimab and tocilizumab. Um, what are the results from the studies that are going on with those? So we know that there's an NIH placebo trial 
with that agent. So really kind of refining our treatments and, and what we can offer our patients. That's extremely helpful. I, I really like how you said we've kind of gone from the Wild West and have focused a little bit. I remember the early days of, you know, whether it's hydroxychloroquine or else we were kind of, you know, throwing everything on the wall to see what would stick. So, so my last question for you, but before we, we turn to the hematologists here, um, uh, as we think through this a little bit, actually, in fact, I'm going to come to Matt because you made reference to him uh, in the emergency department, is so what are you doing right now if in your testing procedure, so that patient's being admitted, whether it be from the clinic or the emergency department, and they test positive, are you immediately, even if they're not particularly ill, treating them with remdesivir? Are you uh, waiting uh, to, to narrow that down to patients that require oxygen or, or just to have us understand what that looks like? Yeah, so um, we're part of the NIH trial, so the adaptive trial for remdesivir, uh, and we're now enrolling for AP2, which is remdesivir versus, uh, plus placebo versus remdesivir plus fericitinib. So uh, I think your listeners will be familiar with that, so a Janus kinase inhibitor. Um, if they don't qualify for that trial and there's uh, different um, inclusion-exclusion criteria, we then look at those individuals for the EUA, the emergency use authorization of remdesivir. Those patients need to be on oxygen or have uh, more of a moderate uh, disease. Um, um, we're not giving the EUA where we're trying to target those individuals that are, are gonna be in the hospital a little bit longer and be sicker. Those individuals that might be in for a day and then go home, they may not actually benefit from the remdesivir. So, we're really trying to target on those individuals that are a little bit sicker that hopefully it could prevent them from being intubated. Um, and as we get more of the data, and we're, we're not aware of it yet, might there be a mortality benefit for those individuals? We just don't know. But we do know that that kind of um, uh, uh, worsening of illness may be prevented because of that benefit in time to improvement, and time to discharge that we see. Uh, with the preliminary placebo data, placebo uh, first remdesivir data. Sure, that's great. Well, no, again, we really appreciate your insights. You know, from a hematology perspective, we we don't often have that level of detail of of data, and that's really helpful. Obviously, we'll very much wait to see what comes with this NIH study. Yeah. So, Matt, from your perspective as an emergency room physician, I know we've got you doing double duty, and we'll, we'll get you to chat a little bit in a minute about what what it is to be a patient with a hematological disease, but. Um, tell us a bit more about your perspective. You're, you're the first emergency room doc we've had in this series, and we're looking forward to, get, to gaining your perspective as, as to what you've seen. I know, speaking to my, my good friends and colleagues, I have some very close friends in our emergency department here in, in Phoenix, Arizona, where we actually haven't had quite as many cases. Uh, paradoxically, sometimes they've not been very busy, but I'm sure that's not exactly the case in Chicago. So, so why don't I turn to you, Matt, and, and give us your perspective. Sure. So... You know, COVID in Chicago is, has not been COVID in New York, not in the emergency department, at least not in ours. We didn't have the same sort of surge that New York had. Um, what we saw was an initial spike uh, and then really that flattening that everybody is aiming for and talking about. And it flattened, but it's lingered since then. It hasn't actually gone away. It hasn't really gone down that much. It's really just sort of lingered for well over a month at this very similar level for what we're seeing. So it's actually kind of become very much norm 
two months for what we do. Um, it's interesting for the effect it's had on us. Um, our operations are very different. We have part of our ED is cohorted into patients that are non-COVID and patients that are COVID, but an imperfect process. There's been some diagnoses of very atypical cases that have made it into the you know, non-COVID area of the emergency department. So we have, so there should be cautions about referring people to the emergency department because providing 100% assurance of being completely away from any COVID is nearly impossible. But all of our rooms now have doors. They didn't used to have doors. Patients don't get placed in the hallways where that used to be the norm. The waiting room is kept as empty as possible. People are immediately placed in rooms even before they're triaged if they can, just to keep them apart from any possible disease. Of course, we all protect ourselves and protect each other, um, but you know that it's still around, uh, no matter what we do. Uh, the diet, the way we diagnose these are really—you would think that it's just you send a test and, and either a positive or negative. But I have to tell you, we very routinely make diagnose COVID in patients clinically who have negative tests because they get an x-ray that has characteristic pain. They even get a CT scan for their abdominal pain. The radiologist reads out characteristic findings of COVID on the, the base of their lungs. So well, that's a really interesting point. If I can jump in on that for a moment, because, uh, and you know, Michael, feel free to jump in here if you want to comment as well. Uh, you know, of course, in the hematology oncology world, uh, we do understand the notion of false negatives and false positives and the limitation of tests. We see this all the time in malignancy. Uh, but so that our listeners can grasp this a little bit more, and emergency room doctors, you guys are experts on positive predictive value and negative predictive value because this is what you base so much of your work on. Uh, so, so Matt, and again, Michael, feel free to jump in. I mean, has this been a big problem? We've been hearing a lot of situations where people end up testing positive without symptoms, uh, but you're telling us now that you have people who you're pretty convinced have clinical COVID, but whose test was negative. This is true. Um, we're definitely seeing that the emergency department. As a matter of fact, you know, we still, we still flag their chart as COVID positive, even if they have a negative test and if they're being admitted, cohorts, COVID unit um, until it becomes more clear. But those patients are often presumed to have COVID throughout the rest of the day, as far as I can tell. So Michael, for, from your perspective then, you know, can you help us understand this? Do you, do you think this is a function of where either the testing was just not adequate or maybe um, they, they will eventually test positive? I mean, not that I want to get too testing focused today, but this is an important point. If we start talking about really widespread testing, uh, we want to understand some of these limitations. Yeah, and I think that's a huge issue as we start looking at the expansion of these tests, um, because it is all about the pretest probability, what the prevalence is of uh, the infection. Um, right now, we're thinking that 
a prevalence of uh, greater than 10% uh, is probably a prevalence where we would consider it high prevalence. And there's not a lot of areas of the US that have that. And so we do worry about these tests and the, the negative predictive value of these tests or what they may have in the true sensitivity in the clinical setting. So we've had a few instances where in the ER, they may be negative. And then 24, 48 hours later, we decide to test them again and keep them on their COVID isolation. And then they turn positive. And is this part of it's probably a fact of the test or the technique for how the test was obtained. Um, the other factor is probably just the amount of virus that's present. Um, we do know in some early studies uh, pointed this out from China, that early on there may not be enough virus for some of these tests that have uh, cycle thresholds in their PCR um, that you need enough virus there to flag it as positive. And that may take a day or two of, of symptoms or a day or two into the illness. Um, and so uh, we have seen that, we've observed that. We've had a few that have just remained negative, but we're, we were convinced enough that we said, you know what, we think that this person might be positive. And that's our hope where the antibody might come into play, where that might be helpful. That's really helpful. So, so Matt, you know, wrapping up your, your side, your angle, at least for, for the, from your perspective in the emergency department, have there been certain signs and symptoms that uh, our audience may not be as familiar with you know, we as, as hematologists now, of course, as we're now in the middle of May or towards later May, we're starting to get back to repeating some of our tests and our x-rays and so on. Uh, are there some pearls there that you can share with us that we, you might not think the person has uh, COVID because the test was negative, but oh, look, they have this x-ray finding or this symptom that is out of keeping. You know, we've been hearing about people losing their sense of smell, for example, you know, these things get get, you know, uh, a little sensationalized, but from your on the front lines experience, what else can you share with us? Sure. So yes, there's definitely this group of patients that sound like classic COVID that have the absence of taste, smell, respiratory symptoms, cough. But there's a significant number of patients we diagnose who might come in with simply gastrointestinal symptoms, namely abdominal pain. And those are the patients who will often get get triaged to a non-COVID area, the emergency department. No other symptoms, just abdominal pain. Throughout their workup, they end up getting a CT scan and then COVID is seen in their lungs despite no fever, no respiratory symptoms, no cough. Um, I've seen cases of just atypical chest pain with no other symptoms that end up uh, showing COVID. And often it's usually based on X-ray findings, that we find these unexpected cases, uh, namely these ground glass opacities uh, at the base, highly suggestive of viral pneumonias, um, or on the base of a, of a CT scan. But it's really a lot of the ones that slip by the triage process are primarily abdominal pain cases. So many other abdominal pains that are not COVID. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. I mean, I think this is particularly insightful. And I have to say, we have not heard as much because I think, you know, uh, in our world, we haven't been as deeply involved in the emergency department. And so this is extremely helpful to us, Matt. Thank you for that. You know, I guess in one respect, thinking, you know, as a more public health angle, uh, you almost have to think that every single patient that's walking in that door is COVID positive. And, and I think that 
obviously has, uh, I see Michael shaking, nodding his head because, you know, that's what the ID docs tell us. I remember the days when I lived through SARS in Toronto. I mean, it didn't matter who you were, every single person, you know, had to come in through a certain door and had to be checked. And of course, uh, it was a little bit easier then because basically we understood that you couldn't transmit the disease unless you had a fever. So everyone had their temperature and so on. Uh, but this is this is a, a challenging bit here. And and actually, I'll turn now to our to our hematology colleagues. And, and maybe I'll start with you, Jessica. Uh, you know, we know you're the director of the uh, leukemia program, acute leukemia program in Chicago as well. Um, to give us a little bit of, of your perspective, and and maybe uh, when I come to you and Mary Beth, if both of you can think uh, firsthand, sort of from a more programmatic side of things, uh, and then secondly more from a treatment side of things. What I mean by programmatic are some of the things that we've already heard uh, from Matt and Michael already. You know that we have COVID and non-COVID units, that we're trying to reduce the size of our waiting rooms, that um, you know we've got more doors now in the emergency department. Uh, uh, I, I know in my own clinic, we've been approaching PPE very carefully. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of video visits. We, we've you know, I see paradoxically, actually, I'm seeing more patients than ever just virtually, uh, because now that we do virtual consults on people all over the all over the country getting consults. But, but tell me a little bit from from your angle, from the program side of what you're doing in Chicago. Uh, Mary Beth will come to you to talk about Seattle in a minute, uh, and then also, of course, what implication that has for leukemia treatment. Uh, so, Jessica, why don't we start with you? Sure. Thank you for including me in this panel. Um, it's really nice to share my experience and experience of Northwestern with all of you. Um, I, think, I think you asked a number of questions kind of all wrapped up into one. So if there are things that I don't touch upon, obviously feel free to interrupt. I'm, I know you're not shy, Joe, and, and certainly will interrupt me as appropriate. Um, I think from a programmatic standpoint um, and a clinical perspective, we think about both our inpatient units and our outpatient um, cancer center practices. In terms of the inpatient unit, things are very much in line with what you've heard from Matt and Michael. We're very lucky that our um, COVID patients are cohorted in a separate area, and in fact, really a separate hospital from where our cancer patients are, to really minimize the risk of transmission to staff and then from staff to patients. We, um, like most other hospitals, do not allow visitors on the inpatient floors to minimize the risk of transmission in those aspects as well. Um, and if we have time to touch upon it, that certainly the lack of visitation, especially as someone is undergoing a prolonged hospitalization, um, is very, can be very troubling for our patients. Um, and we, we are attuned to that clearly as their healthcare providers and certainly our nursing staff, social workers and chaplains are as well. Yeah, if I can to that for a moment, because I, I just think that's so important. I mean, I, I distinctly remember on our uh, bone marrow transplant unit when I worked in Toronto, when we were going through SARS, I mean, I, I can think of some very dear patients I became close to. I was still doing some leukemia back then too you know, came in for an aloe transplant and were in the hospital for six to seven weeks and never saw a family member. Uh, and I know that uh, uh, Yalak will come to you shortly to talk about that angle. But, you know, it might sound like a great programmatic thing to do, and I'm not saying it's inappropriate, but that has a tremendous toll. H have you found ways to try and, and enhance their experience a little bit and, and encourage connectedness while this is happening? Certainly. So, 
you're absolutely right. I can't underscore how how emotionally um, challenging it is for patients um, to be apart from their family members. The things that, that we do are, and I'm sure this is true, and you'll hear from Mary Beth and at other centers, is we try to um, incorporate the patient's family members when we round on the patients. Um, so whether that's through FaceTime or through a phone call if FaceTime is not available, um, and then continuing to follow up with our patients themselves and our patients' family members throughout the day. Um, I'll next turn to um, where we are in our outpatient setting. So it sounds like similar to what you're experiencing, Joe, we've tried to have as many patients who can be seen virtually be seen virtually. And now with the use of video conferencing, um, I, I actually find some really nice aspects of it. I, to be able to see my patients sitting with their family members with me or being or seeing their dog or their homes or looking at the view of what they're looking at while we're talking adds a nice layer of things that we don't get in the office. There's some aspects of it that make a difference in the interaction. It, while I'm, my relationship with my patients is fairly informal, this becomes even more, um, some, some would say kind of more friendly and more, um, bit more like family when I'm interacting with my patient and get to see them sitting on their couch with their dog and their family members um, and hear about what they're making for dinner that night, which I wouldn't normally ask um, when they're in clinic with me. So we've tried, we do learning that. that you're, you're getting all sorts of good recipes, are you? <laughs> you learning I am, that? thank <laughs> you, yes. And, and if it weren't a pandemic, I would, I've, I've announced that I would come over for dinner based on the things that I'm seeing, so yes. Um, and we do that to minimize the risk of exposure to everyone. Um, and as you said, to not have people waiting in that waiting room. And um, it, we are seeing on site, so who are the people I'm seeing in clinic physically? Are the people who are getting active chemotherapy um, that day or soon to, or in the next day or two that need a physical exam um, and need to be seen? and those with specific symptoms that we think require a physical exam in, in that aspect of the interaction. Um, so just ask one question about that. I mean, that, that's really helpful. And I think that's, and, and you know, Mary Beth, I'll come to you in a moment to, to think through this concept as well, because someone described it to me, I think I said in one of our previous events, you know, if, if a lion is about to pounce on you, um, you don't necessarily worry if there's a snake in the bush you're going to jump into. Uh, I do worry that sometimes we may undertreat the patients who really need to be seen uh, because we've been pushing to some of these benefits of video uh, for the fear of COVID when in fact, you know, they've got, and I know you and I are going to have a more detailed conversation about leukemia uh, because, because I think that principle obviously is really important. Uh, but can I ask, when when those patients are coming in, do you have them in the waiting room or do you actually, I know some clinics are even having them stay in their car until it's their time uh, and then have them come in the building or or I know in Chicago parking isn't that easy. So I suspect that they it's a long process to go from your car to your clinic. Uh, but how have you done the logistic part? Are you like spacing your chairs six feet apart or how are you 
minimizing the traffic in your waiting rooms. So I, I want to address that, but I, you also touched upon something that I think is really important. You mentioned the concept of, of kind of overlooking symptoms or people who need to be seen aren't getting seen because of the fear of COVID. I think that's a really important point that needs to be stressed. So I have the luxury of, of my team reaching out to patients beforehand to, to sort out if they want a video conference a visit or if they want to be seen in person. And it's my nurses um, frequently who are making those phone calls. And so we get a sense of the clinical situation at that time. The people who are having in my, my practice who are being seen virtually are tend to be my CML patients who are seen every three to six months, depending on where they are with their treatment status. Um, and they uh, recognize and appreciate that we are still seeing them um, despite there being a pandemic. Um, they'll get their blood work if, if appropriate, and then we speak on the phone. And if at any, at any point, whether my staff or if I am concerned about something, we will convert that patient to an in-person encounter when necessary. So yeah, I'm glad you've emphasized that. I mean, I, I know I've said it repeatedly on this series. I just think it is so important. You know, I think the concept of, of the video visit is so brilliant, but it really then allows the people who really need it. It's the same flatten the curve concept, right? For those people who really needed the ICU, we want them to be in the ICU. We don't want them to, to be at home. And I do worry, and, and Yalak, I know we're going to come to you shortly, but, you know, this, it, how do we balance that potential fear of, uh, you know, uh, obtaining the disease, but also knowing you've already got a disease that needs to be treated. So I appreciate that you've said that. I do wonder with time if we're going to be doing things like really divorcing our outpatient from inpatient experiences so that, as you mentioned earlier, there's less likelihood that we be the vectors of transmission as patients or healthcare providers you know, there's a lot of questions that we could look at maybe towards the end of this program to think about what, if you're going to be a prophet for a moment, you know, how, how, how do we see the future? But uh, I'll, I'll let you wrap up on, on how this is affecting your practice before we come to Mary Beth. Absolutely. So we also minimize our number of days on campus um, to the days that we are actively seeing patients. So if I'm not on service, I see and restrict my, I'm currently restricting my patient interaction time to two days a week. And those are the days that I'm on campus and the rest of the time I'm at home doing the other academic and follow-up clinical work as needed. Um, to, and that was a directive from our cancer center to try to minimize exposure. Um, That's and, great. I haven't heard someone explicitly say that. I think people have, have tried to do that, but to basically say, if you don't need to be in, don't, don't come in. Um, that, that's, uh, that's impressive. So, so you also can sympathize, I think, with a lot of your patients who are spending a lot of time at home, uh, working with children on online school, uh, uh, you know, all the challenges that we have to yeah. face when we're at home. Yes, I am not a very good um, lower school teacher, is what one of the many things I've learned. Um, You're an amazing leukemia doctor, so, so let, let's keep yeah. doing um, The other, I think the other question that you had was what does our waiting room look like? Um, I have ventured out into the waiting room to really make sure that it, it appears safe for our patients. And indeed, I have found that there are very few patients um, actually waiting in our waiting area and they are spread out um, appropriately. We 
try in our cancer center, um, we have the ability to have patients get their blood drawn and then put immediately in a room with a door closed and then we can see them. Especially since we are minimizing the number of patients that we're seeing on site for routine visits, we are able to have our patients in rooms and not waiting in the waiting area. Um, and really you mentioned kind of the, the concept of social distancing. Our patients have been um, practicing social distancing before it was cool to do so. And so they really have, this change is for many of them is not um, the, as stark as it is for a lot of other people. They recognize the importance and the true importance of being um, distant in that physical aspect. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that, Jessica. I know we, we actually talked a bit about that also at the first roundtable. As we've been capturing the number of patients that have be, have unfortunately contracted this virus, even worldwide, and I know for particular, for example, in my world of myeloma, we work very closely with the myeloma doctors throughout all of Asia. We actually saw considerably fewer hematologic malignancies patients than we might have accept, uh, expected. Now we can talk about the science of it and the ACE2 receptor and whether that's downregulated by some of our treatments. Uh, I know uh, Michael didn't have time to go into a lot of the detail, but even some of the, the chemotherapies we use are being potentially used for, for COVID therapy. But I think you hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of this is because our patients, especially if you've ever been through a bone marrow transplant, and Matt, you can share with us in a little bit your experience, we've taught them very carefully how to wash their hands, how to disinfect, how to socially distance, even to a certain extent when to wear a mask. And I think that has very likely um, uh, been one of the reasons, I would suggest at least, that we've seen fewer cancer patients, and particularly hematologic malignancies patients, develop that. So all those those, those lessons that we've been giving our patients around the importance of doing that and hopefully practicing it ourselves, I, I think really has paid off. Uh, Mary Beth, why don't, why don't we turn to you and, and uh, get a chance to ask you a little bit about your perspective. We've heard so much already about, uh, um, you know, practice changing things that have happened in Chicago. Uh, what, what about up in Seattle? Have you taken, and in fact, you were even affected before the rest of us were, frankly, um, but, but what kinds of things have you adopted in your practice that are different than we've historically done uh, to try and uh, limit the risk to our own patients? Yeah, thanks, Joe, and thanks, Jessica, for your thoughts about leukemia patients and other heme malignancy patients. I would say that we thought we were the first in Seattle, but now it turns out we probably weren't. There were probably multiple kind of returning travelers and that kind of thing. And um, certainly our, our returning first returning traveler in January from the Wuhan area was somebody that um, made us all very aware, um, even though that wasn't a, a cancer patient or a, a heme malignancy patient, very aware that we in Chicago were vulnerable, I'm sorry, we in Seattle, excuse me, were, were vulnerable and needed to um, be prepared for what, what might be coming down the, the pipeline. Um, and then when the nursing home outbreak in late February happened um, and, and there were a number of deaths that were associated with that, I think that really 
drove the point home that some of the things that had been talked about more in the abstract really needed to be actualized. And so while things continue to change um, on a frequent basis, I think that a lot of the things we're doing are similar to what have been described from the, the experience in Chicago. Um, some other things that are a little bit different, I would say, or maybe the same and we just didn't talk about them, are on the outpatient cancer center side. Um, we've really restricted entry to a single point in the cancer center um, and everybody gets screened. So that's patients. Um, patients are allowed to have one accompanying visitor. So the patient and the visitor go through um, one door and, and next to that staff um, go through another door, but everybody is subjected to the same series of screening questions. And then everybody is handed a mask because we've been doing universal masking for at least six weeks or so. Um, and some patients choose to wear their own mask, um, but everybody is provided with a surgical mask if they don't have one of their own um, that's expected to last for the day for providers unless there's some, some contamination or, or something like that. Um, and that's um, to make sure that patients who do have any symptoms or, or family members who do have any symptoms um, they may not recognize them like we've been discussing as kind of these upper respiratory things that you would think of with a coronavirus. And so the, the questioning does include things like diarrhea and GI symptoms and things like that. And so if anybody has any symptoms, they can pretty quickly be triaged to um, an isolation room and, and get swabbed. Um, patients are encouraged to call ahead of time if they are at all concerned about symptoms. We do have a special COVID um, nurse triage um, that tries to set up some of that drive-through testing for patients so that they don't even enter the cancer center at all if they have any symptoms. But certainly if they need to be evaluated for one reason or another, we've set up the capability to be able to kind of rush them to a room. And I'll say that I also have recently had my first personal COVID positive patient. So I've gotten to see what it's like when that patient now discharged from the hospital comes into the clinic. And so there are a series of um, precautions that are taken there to make sure that even though um, before she left the hospital, she was actually swab negative um, when she had a repeat swab. So presumably not as infectious as she was when she was sort of actively suffering symptoms from the virus. Um, but then the process, what it's like, because she still needs to come in to get her blood drawn. She's, you know, cytopenic and, and needs to get transfusions and things like that. So um, there's a, a process in place um, whereby she calls when she's outside, the nurses meet her in some protective gear, accompany her um, to a room where then she really minimizes the exposure to people in the lab or elsewhere um, just out of an abundance of, of caution. Wow, that, this, this is a lot of great information. Wow, this is quite helpful. I mean, I think one of the things I, I want to... Um, folks in on a little bit is and because this also came from Jessica in fact all of you thus far have been talking about this notion of trying as much as possible to keep people away who don't need to be there uh, to find alternate ways and and this drive-through testing um, I think has been extremely helpful I'm sure Matt is happy too that it's keeping certain people out of the emergency department who really don't need to be there 
but you know, as hematologists and oncologists, you know, I, 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 I'm a pure hematologist and I'm kind of a blood geek, you know, I order blood work all the time. Um, we're trying to learn and partner a little bit, for example, with local labs um, so that patients, if they're, they're just getting blood tests, they don't actually have to come towards our institution at all. Is that something you've been doing in Seattle also? Are there, and again, maybe the second part of the question is, do you predict in the future that there may be more of that, that people may, um, you know, for larger academic centers, you, you know, you want that trend in your blood work. You want to be able to see, you don't want the, the, the challenges of three labs testing the patient over three weeks and each of them with a different confidence interval. I mean, it's so irritating. Uh, but we're working on a system, for example, here in my uh, center where uh, basically our central lab is developing satellites. So the blood is drawn uh, closer to the patient's home out in Sun City or wherever else they live. Uh, you know, Phoenix, we have about 5 million people living here in quite a huge geographical area. But that tube then actually gets brought and evaluated in our central lab. Obviously, there's some exceptions when blood needs to be on ice and so on, certain things. But, but then it allows us to have that confidence that our testing is done here, uh, but that the patient doesn't necessarily have to be here. So ha have you tried it? Are any of those strategies ongoing in Seattle or how have you seen that happening? Yeah, um, I do think that telehealth is here to stay in one fashion or another. And I think you bring up this point that telehealth, um, you know, is, is only useful if we have at least some of the tools that would be at our disposal normally. And I think labs are a really important aspect for our patients with hemalignancies. Um, so we have, um, as part of the University of Washington system, there are a number of satellite labs that um, are run centrally. Um, so patients have sometimes felt more comfortable going to some of those neighborhood clinics to get their blood drawn. Um, I wouldn't say that there is a move um, as yet underway to partner with some of the other labs. Um, I think that's been a little bit more individualized and, and I agree with you. It's just the formatting and the reference ranges. It's, it makes it really challenging you know, but it's in my record, you know, say that, say the patients, but, um, and it is, but it's, it's not the same. And, you know, I think particularly when I see so many patients with acute leukemia and I really care about, you know, are those really monocytes or are those actually blasts that are being miscalled by an outside lab? And so I think that, you know, we've encouraged our patients who, um, are coming in for telehealth visits to get their labs drawn before the visit um, when, when necessary. And it's been really quiet. It's always quiet on the weekends. We are fortunate to have a 20, uh, you know, a seven day a week lab, not 24 hours a day, but open considerable hours on the weekends and it's been very quiet. So patients have felt pretty comfortable coming to the lab, being one of the only people in the lab. They're doing a lot of social distancing procedures within the lab as well to make sure that, you know, we have the data available so that we can actually have a conversation because we are limited by not being able to do the physical exam. And I think a lot of times it's not always necessary. And I do also, like Jessica, have excellent nurses who reach out to the patients ahead of time and make sure that everybody's sort of comfortable with the telemedicine side of things because I think there was a big move towards every visit is going to be telemedicine unless otherwise stated. And that's not, not always appropriate for a patient who's undergoing chemotherapy. 
Um, I think a lot of times they're coming in at other times and not necessarily seeing the physician in person, but possibly seeing the, the um, advanced practice provider up in infusion or seeing one of the nurses to go over things. And then if my role is to talk about the results of the bone marrow biopsy, sometimes that can be done by a telehealth with that goal of really maintaining um, social distance or at least distance socializing. Yeah, I really appreciate your balance, Mary Beth. I, th I think you've stated that extremely well, and I would hope that everyone on our panel would agree. You know, that's why I gave that analogy of the lion attacking you versus the snake. I mean, there are two horrible things, but we have to balance that. I think, you know, I think some patients, you know, just obviously want everything to go virtual, but you know, those subtle things that we do in a physical exam. And, you know, as hematologists, we're not always known for our deep neurological exams, but there are certain key things. And especially as a leukemia physician, I know, uh, and I know Jessica and I may talk about this in more detail at an upcoming series, but, you know, there are infection risks and there are things that we need to detect quickly that even with the best uh, uh, video uh, system that you have and a high resolution, it, it's just not, it's absolutely not the same. Um, and, and, I, and I do think we have to be very selective. I, I, su I suspect that you're right also, on the other hand, that telemedicine is here to stay. Uh, I thought it was a very bold and appropriate move of you know, CMS and Medicare to allow us to bill uh, from that standpoint and the private insurance companies, because I do think this is a long-term strategy where there are those, those sort of well baby checks. I think Jessica referred to her, you know, CML patients that may do, be doing really, really well. Um, but as we turn now to, to YALAC to think about a patient perspective, this is probably a really good time for us to transition because if there's is anything I've always believed in, one of the privileges I have of every couple of months up until this happened of, of giving a lecture to all of our trainees about the importance of patient-physician communication. You know, there is a human dimension that is impossible to fully feel on video. I mean, I feel very close to all of you right now, and that's wonderful, but there is, there is a difference. And, and um, I've always felt that's important. I always quote and say, when I got accepted to medical school, my father gave me two pieces of advice. He said, number one, treat nurses like the professionals they are. Uh, he was, himself was a physician. He was a urologist, actually. And secondly, he said, you know, you were made with two ears and one mouth for a reason. And he talked about the importance of listening to your patient. Uh, and we've shown in particular in oncology that a healthcare provider-patient relationship is sentinel to not only things like adherence, but patient satisfaction, patient quality of life, and even overall survival. So, so Yelak, let me turn to you uh, as, a, as a dear friend, as a, as a patient, and also uh, you play a tremendous role as a patient advocate. Uh, help us understand the patient's perspective here, and based on what you've heard from us already, give us deeper insight from your perspective. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me, Dr. Joe. Uh, as everybody said, telemedicine is here to stay as a complement to physical visit, opinion. As it is during those physical visits, at least initially, that patients build that relationship that you just talked about. Uh, and those relationships are what uh, determine in cases how patients stay on medication or how patients end up doing well uh, post-treatment because 
they are quote unquote compliant to tests or to their follow-up uh, medications or to follow up to their follow-up tests. So I see telemedicine being as a complement. I have actually a personal example that I give you. I'm a myeloma patient. This December, I will be uh, a patient for 25 years. So I am really happy to be here. Uh, uh, wow. Potentially celebrate that. And so I have a, a myeloma expert that I use. Uh, and when I needed to change treatment about 12, 13 months ago, uh, I was in his office and having that conversation. And I said, what do you think of me doing X, Y, Z? His response was, yeah, I think that's a good thing. But his body language was completely different than uh, what he was telling me. So I, but I said, Dr. Swain, so you are telling me that, but I noticed this body language. So that is not something I want to do. What do you think I should do next? So you will not be able to read those body languages, patients reading their doctors and doctors reading their patients through telemedicine. But I think it really is an important uh, complement. And, and I think the other thing is myeloma patients uh, that end up, in my experience at least, doing well long-term, uh, learn a lot about their disease, participate in support groups, are active in social media. And what we have to do during this pandemic is really take all of those things virtual. Uh, we don't have an in-person support group meetings, but we do have uh, virtual support group meetings that we do. And the International Myeloma Foundation is helping support groups facilitate those um, virtual uh, support groups meetings. Uh, there are a lot of uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and other uh, groups that have been uh, that have come alive as a result of this pandemic. But those groups were already existing uh, for myeloma patients. Uh, and as you know, Dr. Joe, some of those people give you guys a hard time for wanting information in various social media ways. But that, what is different about the COVID-19 pandemic is the runway we have to learn has shortened significantly. And the information is changing rapidly. And so we have to depend on you as experts to distill that information and make that information relevant to us as patients uh, in, a, in a timely manner. And myeloma patients may need that information a little different than uh, leukemia patients, but the general genesis of that information is probably similar to all of them. And so it is managing that is, I think, what I see being different during this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, that's extremely insightful, Yilak. And, and um, you know, I was on a, on a call the other day with a group of physicians and one of my colleagues from Canada, actually, he was saying it a little bit tongue in cheek, but I think you'll understand his point. He was saying, you know, if, you, if you're on social media a lot, he says, it seems like we have more COVID experts than COVID patients. 
Uh, you know, the point being is that everybody thinks they know what's going on. I mean, I, I'd rather listen to Michael, frankly, as an ID specialist than I would even myself. Yeah, that, but that must be very challenging for patients too. I mean, I think if we go back to that notion that the trust relationship that they've built with their providing physician, I mean, if you watch the news all day long, well, not only will you be extremely anxious, you know, we just get all these mixed messages and some of it seems to be political and some is scientific and should I do this and I should I do that? And in my experience, my patients have exhibited a tremendous amount of anxiety at the sort of information overload. Uh, they, they want, I think the word you used was distill it down you know, to pro provide it to the patient, you know, knowing that many of our listeners today are hematologists and oncologists in the community, uh, what insight can you give them to help their patients navigate through this? How do they give enough, but not too much information? I know there's no perfect answer for this. I mean, it's like trying to explain chemotherapy when Mary Beth has to explain a new chemotherapy regimen or, you know, Jessica's explaining a bone marrow transplant to someone. I mean, th there's a, so much information, you've got to narrow it down. But this is such a unique situation where I think all of us have elevated blood pressures and all of us have elevated heart rates, knowing what's happening around the world. Um, help us just understand that a little bit more. What, what would you want these docs to know to help at least dissipate some of that anxiety? So as myeloma patients, uh, we have been uh, conditioned to look through data and then uh, depend on the experts' guidelines and then end up trusting the judgment of our experts. So I, I think uh, patients that have been patients for a long period of time know how to differentiate the data from the guideline from the judgment. But I think what is really important is balancing, in my opinion, reality and hope. Too much reality in our case, uh, especially when you don't have enough data, leads to depression. Uh, too much hope is also, in some cases, going to lead to some sort of delusion. So having the balance between that uh, reality and hope and understanding the difference between data guidelines and judgment and understanding who are the experts in this field who I can trust, not only in the COVID area, but in COVID plus my cancer, COVID plus my whatever malignancy I may have, I think uh, are the two important uh, factors I, I need to look at as patients. Wow, I, I don't think I've ever heard someone say it so beautifully and succinctly as you have, Yalak. Thank you very much. I think, I think for us as hematologists and oncologists, uh, you know, we're trying to, as you said, balance that reality and hope. And, and I think you, you've highlighted it well. I've had the privilege of being involved with the, you know, the ASH guidelines and the ASCO guidelines and the International Myeloma Society guide. Everyone's writing guidelines as to what to do when it comes to your individual patient, you've got to look at them individually. And I think to me, that's something that resonates from what you're saying. You know, the guidelines might say, when possible, do a video visit or when possible, switch from an IV to oral therapy. But that surely doesn't mean that everybody, as Jessica nicely pointed out, should have a video visit. 
that surely, as, as Mary Beth pointed out, doesn't mean that everybody, uh, you know, can have an appointment missed or doesn't have to have their blood work. There are people uh, that we clearly have to care for, and I really, really appreciate your insight. Well, we have a second patient, of course, with us who, who we're, we're calling on a second time. Matt, you've given us the ER doc, and not that you're two people or you've got some split personality, you're one person and we care for you deeply, but, but, but do you have more to share with us from a patient perspective here, someone who's you know, been through a hematological malignancy? Uh, share with us a little bit more of that perspective, if you could, please. So as far as being a patient with a history of a hematologic malignancy, for me, the biggest fear was initially returning to work. Uh, that was back in 2014, um, especially during influenza season. And to be honest, I was you know, less confident about my immune system then, and rightly so, than I am now. So you know, my, my precautions were probably similar then um, as they are now, maybe minus the gown. But, uh, you know, nowadays, as a patient, um, I feel like because I'm mostly recovered, that I'm more like the other colleagues I work alongside who don't have a history of malignancy. I know that um, having had a stem cell transplant, that I have a certain degree of, you know, suppression, but having been able to be weaned off of all medications, I know that it's not as profound as it once was. And having weathered five or six flu seasons since returning to work, um, you know, I I feel comfortable enough in this scenario. I I don't necessarily fear working around COVID, but I certainly respect it and take all the precautions, um, protect myself, and we all protect each other in the emergency department. Um, but now. Luckily, uh, I'm at the stage where I just take the same precautions that everybody else takes, which is just assume everybody has COVID. Uh, that's very helpful and very insightful, actually. Um, uh, you know, I want to thank everybody on the panel, of course, when, when we come to the end. But I think, Matt, this is a good time for me to particularly note that as someone who works right on the front line, we really appreciate what you do. Um, uh, hearing you speak the way you do passionately for your patients, also cognizant of your history. I mean, you're a role model. You're, you're, you're the, the kind of physician that I want my trainees to spend time with and learn from. Uh, so we, we really appreciate that. I, I, I say it to every trainee I work with, and, I, and I'm sure they think I'm the old fart that thinks this way or that way. But, you know, we don't treat leukemia. We don't treat myeloma. We don't treat lymphoma. We treat people. Uh, and, I, and I just see that so clearly in what you're saying. Time, of course, is going quickly. I'm enjoying this. We can do this for hours and hours. But before we wrap up, I'm going to give each of you a chance to sort of, is there something that particularly struck you during this conversation or something we haven't even mentioned yet to sort of give us as, as a concluding thought uh, before we go? Uh, and so we'll maybe go back to, to the original order we were in. But uh, so, so I'll start with you, Michael. Any Any final thoughts? I know that this is a a rapidly changing world. And if I ask you this question next week, it'll be different. But but any final thoughts before we wrap up from you? I think, uh, you know, this has been a great uh, discussion. I think it's been great to, you know, hear from and learn from everyone that's been on the panel. Um, I'll actually say, you know, in response to uh, ELAC, who 
made that comment about hope and reality um, I, I, and the differences between them and depending on you know, how you look at what's going on. Um, for me, it's that all that we've learned, we're starting to, I think, have that hope and reality maybe start to have those two start to line up a little bit more. And I think, you know, hearing what all of us are doing, whether it's at Chicago, in our cancer center, our outpatient clinics out in Seattle, uh, in the ER, if you're working with, uh, with patients, seeing them up front, you know, we're really um, um, learning about this illness and how to both treat it, but then how to identify it and then protect everyone that we're, we're working with. And so hopefully that kind of hope and reality will start to line up a little bit more and those parallel lines will start to become the same line or pretty close to it. Thank you, very, very well stated. Matt? Well, Joe, earlier you asked for a pearl from the emergency department. And if there's one pearl I can give, it's that I've learned to never say that any particular case cannot be COVID because there's so many weird COVID cases out there and if you have a case that tests negative for COVID and it sounds like COVID, still treat it like it's COVID so that you protect your patients and their loved ones. Uh, if it sounds like COVID, treat it like it's COVID. But if it doesn't sound like COVID, still be COVID. Well said, that's, that's a good pearl. So I guess if it sounds like a duck, but maybe not fully like a duck, you still wanna think of it as a duck. <laughs> so that's helpful. Jessica. Um, I wanted to also underscore what had been said. It's been a true pleasure being on this panel, and I've learned and been touched by so much that has been shared. So thank you to all the panelists. Um, I think in terms of closing thoughts, um, that um, dear, for all of the patients who are watching um, and for all the other healthcare providers who may or may not be at an academic center, um, those of us who are in academic medicine are still here. We're working, we're practicing. And so if there are questions about specific patients, um, patient issues, please contact us. We're here. Likewise, while things are a little different in terms of clinical trials, clinical trials are still ongoing at many centers. And um, if there are questions as a patient or questions as another healthcare provider, please ask. Mm, great point. Great point. We'll, we'll chat a little bit more about that for sure when the two of us have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about clinical trials in particular. Uh, Mary Beth, how about from uh, your perspective, any final thoughts from uh, the Northwest? Yeah, two, two quick things I want to say. One is just to follow up on what Matt said. One thing we didn't really get into was um, a lot of our patients are getting retested. And so it's pretty much standard for all of our patients who are being admitted with neutropenic fever to have a second. They have one when they get admitted to the hospital or if they have anything that's concerning. But if that's negative, they have a follow-up test either 12 or 24 hours later. And you know that patient I mentioned who um, was positive, um, who has a history of, of leukemia, um, you know, her first test was negative and the second test was positive. And so some of that gets to what Michael was saying about the cycle time for some of these PCR-based tests and that kind of thing. But I think it's really important to 
um, just have a really, really high index of suspicion for anybody that has um, symptoms of, I guess, any sort is what we're kind of concluding from this. And then the second thing that I would say is we've spent all this time talking about the disease um, and T malignancies and how those two, um, two different disorders interact. But I think prevention is probably just the most important thing that we can say for our patients. And so, you know, avoiding healthcare settings as much as possible, but not to the point where it's unsafe for the other, the other problems that you have. Avoiding, you know, going to the grocery store if you can and, and just really doing all of that, that social distancing stuff, because it does seem like patients with hemalignancies do um, have uh, worse outcomes, though I think there's still a lot that remains to be learned um, about the intersection between COVID and, and all, all hemalignancies not just leukemia. Absolutely. Thank, thanks for centering us on that uh, prevention. I could see Michael uh, agreeing as well as a good ID specialist would that uh, this is not the time for everyone to flood to Home Depot and try and do their renovations at the same time. <laughs> Uh, I know that Yalak posted a picture on social media about uh, uh, a store not far from him that was that was filled up. So Yalak, why don't we turn to you for your final thoughts before I close? Absolutely. Uh, I, I one of my uh, feedback slash advice for both patients, their family members, uh, and even physicians is it's okay to tag out. Uh, you can take one day, one weekend, or however long you think you need to, uh, to tag out and say, uh, today I'm going to shut down and not listen to any myeloma, cancer, or COVID news. Uh, and I'm just going to be who I am and be with my family, with my dog, or whatever. Uh, you will be so much better uh, the following day for doing that. And we patients need you doctors uh, to be able to do that so you can come and uh, work even harder next week. So I think you can all see why I love Yalak so much, <laughs> why I have such a man crush on him. He's uh, really a remarkable person. Uh, and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I, my sort of parting thought is, if there's anything this virus has taught us is it's taught us our own humanity. None of us are immune per se. I mean, this is a tiny little, I know that uh, Michael could give us more detail, but this is a tiny little virus that has just caused unbelievable pain and hardship around the world. And, and it makes us in touch with our own reality. And we see all the, the jokes and all the funny things about people staying at home and, you know, how they're, how they're making their home, their gym and their school and all these things. And, uh, but there is a point that we realize that we're not superhuman and we do need to tap out and we do need to uh, get a break and a rest. And I hope that it teaches us and the incoming group of physicians coming in, the medical students and the residents that have really struggled through this in their training uh, to realize our own humanity and our limitations and the importance of slowing down a little bit I'll, I'll i'll confess to you yeah like yes there are times when even i whom i'm always going 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 like the energizer bunny i've learned to slow down a little bit i uh i take my time every morning here in the desert to go for a run someone told me that uh, the, the quarantine will make you a, a hunk 
a chunk or a drunk. Uh, so I'm trying to be careful from those last two, um, but it's it's really put us in touch with the reality and reminded us of what we're doing. I, Jessica said it beautifully when she talked about seeing her patients in their home context and seeing them with their pets or their family members. I've seen grandchildren, I've seen pets, I've seen unusual pets, but it's been really uh, a pleasure. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we want to thank IMEDEX in particular for facilitating this. And uh, we've had educational grants to support this program. We're so thankful, as I mentioned from the start, this is a, a six-week program of which we've uh, now completed four and will soon have one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, Dr. Altman uh, to talk about myeloid diseases and uh, indeed with ALAC to uh, get some deeper thoughts regarding uh, the patient experience. So we appreciate you uh, joining us today. Again, this is CME certified. So if you wish to obtain credit uh, on the website is the opportunity to do so. And also, if you still have questions, we do want to try and answer these questions in a timely way. So feel free to submit them. Uh, so I'll uh, wrap up here and thank everyone on the panel for joining me. Thank all of you for listening. Trust that this has been helpful to you in your own personal life and as you care for patients. And we look forward to seeing you at the next uh, venue that we have in the interim. If you want to go uh, to oncnet.com, uh, you can learn much more information uh, around uh, cancer care uh, and education in that realm. So thanks again and have a great day. Thank you.